So last week in our first sermon on marriage, we kind of narrowed down the, the what of marriage. We looked at how God defines marriage according to his word. And we saw that marriage is four things. It is instituted by God. It is a covenant before God. It's something that is truly beautiful. And it's foundational to society and to human flourishing. And I hope that after hearing that sermon, that you walked away seeing marriage as truly a, a wonderful and beautiful thing. It's one of God's greatest gifts to humanity that, that comes with many benefits for us. But one problem that we can sometimes fall into in our marriages is to see all of these wonderful benefits that God has provided for us, and we make those the main pursuit of our marriages. It would be the equivalent of going off to university for friendships rather than an education. Or you know, working out so that people notice your changed physique rather than being healthy. These are all benefits of those things, but they're, they're not meant to be the primary pursuit. And in marriage, the same can be true. For example, happiness is a wonderful benefit of marriage. I know that my marriage has brought me much joy and laughter and pleasure and comfort that I may not have found apart from my wife. These things are wonderful and they should, and, and we should desire them for our marriages, but the danger arises when they become the primary pursuit of our marriages or the purpose of our marriage. You know, if happiness or romance or the, the bliss of the married life becomes the ultimate goal for marriage, then we are going to be left crushed if that never happens as we expect it to. If marriage is primary, primarily about having this, this fairy tale life that is painted for us, when it turns out that Prince Charming can't deliver on it, that's really going to hurt. When the, the idol of happiness in marriage is where you put all of your eggs, when that comes crashing down, it's going to be messy. And I'm not saying don't desire an, a, a happy marriage, that you should, you should be completely content if, you're, if your marriage is, is absolutely brutal. You should desire a happy marriage, and you should strive towards a, a marriage that is happy. You shouldn't be content in a difficult marriage. You should be content with the Lord, but you should long for a happy marriage. Usually if there isn't happiness, it's likely revealing some sin issues in either you or your spouse or both, if it's not present. But happiness is not the purpose of marriage. See, there are greater and there are grander plans that God has for you and for your marriage. And the beauty of all of it really is that when we strive after God's plan for marriage rather than our own, I think we truly do reap the fullness of, of God's intention for our marriage. And so this morning, that's what we are going to be looking at. What are the, the purposes of marriage? Or another way of asking it is, why? Why did God institute this, this, this institution of marriage? And after looking through the word, I found five main purposes as to why God instituted marriage. And there may be 
some other secondary purposes, but for now we're just going to focus on these main five. And here they are. First, the purpose of marriage is companionship. Companionship. Second, the purpose of marriage is your sanctification. Third, the purpose of marriage is to prevent sexual immorality. Fourth, the purpose of marriage is to have children and disciple them. And fifth, the purpose of marriage is to display God's gospel love. And so those are the purposes that we're going to be looking at. And Lord willing, we're all going to leave here with a renewed eagerness to pursue these things for our marriages. And so first, God's purpose for marriage is companionship. And you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, where we will see what God's Word has to say about this. And normally we'll walk through just one passage in our sermons, but this morning we're going to be jumping around quite a bit, uh, looking at various passages in God's Word. So Genesis chapter 2, right where we left off last week, uh, verse fi- starting in verse 15 and going to verse 18. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. See, as I mentioned in my last sermon, during the creation account that we read in Genesis 1, after everything is created, after each day, we read this common phrase that God saw that it was good. But then in Genesis 2, as God is observing his last creation, his greatest creation, mankind, he says, hold on a second. Something here is not good. And now not good doesn't mean that God created something that was bad or that God created something that was evil or that God somehow messed up in his creation. He's like, dang, I have to, I have to fix this. No, it means that God's creation was, was incomplete. It wasn't yet what it was meant to be. God has made Adam, but Adam is missing something. He's not complete. He is alone. And there needs to be a helper, a companion that is fit for him. God has has given Adam this task that we read here to to work and to keep the garden. And then in Genesis 1 we read, he also has the task of exercising dominion over the earth and being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. But that's a task that can't be done alone. He needs someone to, to assist him, to help him in that. And so God, seeing Adam's incompleteness, solves the problem by providing Adam with a wife. And so we see here, this is the first purpose of marriage. It is companionship. See, marriage was given so that man and woman could be joined in one flesh and not be alone. And this was for several reasons. First is, since we are all created in God's image, meaning that we are in various ways like God, we have the same relational nature that our God has. You see, our God has been a relational God from the very beginning. 
within himself and within the members of the Trinity. That's why we can say that God is love and God has always been love because God has always had this relational love between the three members of the Trinity. And so it makes sense then that his creation, whom he has made in his own image, would also be a people who are relational like God. That's why most people, unless there's something maybe gone wrong, desire some sort of relationship with others. It's innate to who we are. My wife and I recently watched a few episodes of the show called Alone. If you're not familiar with that show, someone is dropped off in the wilderness to survive all alone as as long as they can. If they win, it's like $500,000 or something like that. And what I find very interesting is that most people that go on the show and that end up quitting aren't quitting because they're starving. They're not quitting because they're cold. Not quitting because they can't find enough water. They're quitting because they're alone. They, they miss the relationships that they are meant to have. And it goes to show that within our nature is, is this desire for relationship, friendship, companionship. And then we see in God's word that the, the pinnacle of these human relationships is marriage. I mean, in no other relationship do you become one flesh. In no other relationship do you, do you form a new family unit. I mean, it's meant to be the place where there is more comfort, where there's more trust, more vulnerability, more, more forgiveness, more and deeper connection, and more growing together in righteousness than in any other relationship that we have. So God has designed it that a husband and wife are to share this deepest level of, of relationship and intimacy and companionship. You know, one thing that reminds me of this, of which I'm very thankful for, is that when my wife and I uh, will sometimes get in conflicts over something or there's this strain on our relationship, my wife will tell me, Lucas, we are on the same team. We're on the same team. We are, we are in this together. It's not me versus you. It's, it's me and you versus our sin and the world. You see, marriage is given so that we will, we will have a teammate that is always with us. We'll have a companion. We'll have a, a friend that is closer than any other friend. And so that's the first kind of aspect of the companionship part of marriage. But that's not all. You see, marriage as companionship is not simply a solution to the relational aspect of our lives and being alone. It's also a solution to the mandate and the mission of our lives. You see, you could be the bestest of friends with your spouse. And you could do all the fun things together and have a a deep relationship where you you confide in one another and you trust one another, but you could still be missing the point of companionship in marriage. And the reason that I say this is because if if you look at our passage, you'll notice that Eve is not called a friend. She's called a helper. You see, if Eve was, was given to Adam to help him with something, and that was in part the, the state of his being alone, to help him with his, his loneliness. But more than that, she was given to Adam so that they could together accomplish the task that God has given them. The task that we read back in Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over the earth. The task given to Adam in Genesis 2, 
to work the land and to keep it and to take care of the animals and to take care of the garden. It's what we call uh, the cultural mandate. There's this mandate that is given, but Adam was unable to do this task on his own. And it is the woman who brings the completeness, completeness to Adam so that this task can be accomplished. You see, their marriage has a, a greater purpose than relational companionship, and that is missional companionship. And so practically speaking, your spouse then is not simply given to you to be your friend for deep personal companionship. They are there to be your helper in the task that is set before you. And a good question I think we should be all, we, we should all be asking ourselves is whether or not we are, are missing this particular aspect of our marriages. I mean, does your marriage exist with the understanding that God has brought the two of you together for something greater than your own personal fulfillment? Does your marriage lead to greater kingdom activity and service for the Lord? Or are you simply content with being someone with having someone to, to go home and, and to have a house with and to, to help you pay down your mortgage faster and to watch Netflix or be your euchre partner when you need one? I mean, how are you viewing your marriage? Do you see it as, as having this missional component that understands that, that there's a greater purpose uh, in it for you? See, that's why God has given you a companion. So you can be heading towards the expansion of God's kingdom. And so that's the first purpose of marriage. God has instituted marriage so that we would have companionship, both relationally and missionally. And we've gone to the second point. The purpose of marriage is your sanctification. And this one's not just true of marriage, but really true of of pretty much everything. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so in other words, whatever circumstances you might find yourself in life, the answer to the question, what is the will of God for my life in this? The answer is always my sanctification. That I would be more holy and be more conformed to the righteousness of Christ. And the same is true for marriage. You see, God has instituted marriage to make you a holier person. Marriage is meant to be a a catalyst for your sanctification. Anyone here who who has taken chemistry knows what a a catalyst is. You have a chemical reaction, and most of the time chemical reactions are quite slow, but what you can do is you can add a catalyst to that chemical reaction, and it's going to speed up the reaction that occurs. And one of the purposes of marriage is to be a catalyst, to to speed up the process of your sanctification. Sometimes that's done by by wonderful encouragement from your spouse, but most of the time, if we're honest, that's done by living with another sinner and by having to learn how to live with another sinner. You see, God has given you your spouse to make you holy. Now, most couples would agree That marriage is for the purpose of sanctification, but we often forget one very important word. It is for your sanctification. We like to get caught up in the the pursuit of our spouse's sanctification. And when it's 
It's you that needs to focus on this and needs to be, to be worked upon when really our focus should be on our sanctification. We shouldn't be fully on board all the time when, when our spouse needs to change, but then all of a sudden when we need to change to say, uh, no, this, my, my marriage is, is, is about you getting holier. And this attitude is revealed, I think, when we play the blame game when it comes to our sin. I think we can admit that we've probably all done that. You know, if my wife respected me more, then I'd love her more. If my husband was a little more useful around the house and with the kids, then I'd stop getting angry at him and nagging him. If they, if they didn't sin so much, then I wouldn't sin so much. If, if they were a little bit holier, then I would be a little bit holier too. But does that sound familiar to you? It should, because it's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Adam says, Adam even blames God. He's like, it was the woman that you gave me that caused me to sin. They blamed others for their own sin, and that itself is a sin. And so I want to be clear. You are not sinning in your marriage because your spouse is sinning. You are sinning because you are a sinner, and you choose to sin. And you need to humble yourself and admit that and not blame it on your spouse's behavior. Now, I get it that in marriage, when your, your spouse is not living according to God's design for marriage, when they're not pursuing holiness in their own lives, yeah, it is a lot harder, a lot harder to be holy. And you're probably going to slip up more and you're, you're probably going to need to be on your knees praying more and being more diligent to watch your behavior. I'm not, I'm not denying that. But it doesn't change what God has called you to do. See, regardless of your spouse's behavior, you obey God. Because that's what God has called you to do in your marriage. And so we need to start thinking of our marriage kind of with that mindset that maybe, maybe God cares more about us being holy than he does about us being happy. And the beauty in that is that when we do pursue our own sanctification, a real peace and, and contentment and usually happiness will follow as a result of that. Because we are seeking and doing the will of God in our lives, which is our own sanctification. And so then practically as you go home from here and start thinking about the situations that you're in now in your marriage and, how, and, and, and try to think through how God is, is using those to make you holy. I mean, is he trying to teach you patience? Trying to teach you grace, gentleness, contentment? Is he revealing something deep within your heart by your responses? Maybe your pride, your anger, your selfishness, your idolatry over something. So you're in your marriage so that God can sanctify you. And so start looking for areas where you can live in greater obedience to God. So that's the second purpose of marriage, which is your sanctification. Now moving on to the third purpose of marriage. And this one's related to sanctification, but, but it isn't one that we typically first think of, but nonetheless is a purpose of marriage. And that is to prevent sexual immorality. And so you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
where we will read what, what Paul has to say uh, on this topic. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 to 5 and then uh, down at verse 9. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man to not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then down in verse 9, or sorry, verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so this here, it's an interesting passage. Uh, we'll, We'll have to come back to it another time to get the fullness of it. But essentially, Paul is addressing this question of, of whether or not someone should marry. You know, they're, they're writing a question to Paul, and I think the question, we don't know what it was, but I think it was something along the lines of, what should we do? Should we get married? Uh, if our unbelieving spouse has left us, should we stay uh, unmarried? What, what should we do regarding this whole marriage thing? It's, it's new to us. We've lived in this pagan world, and we're not really sure. And Paul says at the beginning there that it's, it's fine not to marry, but then he says, because of the, the strong temptation to sexual immorality, most people should get married so that they don't fall into sexual immorality. You see, we by, by nature are, are intimate beings. You know, God has given us a drive for, for physical intimacy and the scriptures affirm that over and over as a, as a desire. That's not something that we're called to be ashamed of or we're called to, to try and eliminate or suppress, but it's something to express and delight in as a gift from God so long as it's done in the appropriate context. And the only appropriate context is within marriage between one husband and one wife. You know, everything outside of that is what the Bible defines as sexual immorality. And so Paul's point in this passage here is that God has given us this gift of marriage as a means of preventing the terrible sin of sexual immorality. Because marriage is a place where physical intimacy, the natural desire for it, can be wonderfully expressed without falling into sin. Now an implication from this, which Paul himself brings up, is that in order for marriage to function with this purpose, it's important that spouses don't use the term deprive one another of their conjugal rights. A very simple analogy would be if, if I have a strong, natural desire to eat pizza and my wife stops making me pizza, I'm going to go look for pizza elsewhere so that I can eat it. Well, likewise, marriage only functions with the purpose of, of preventing this unlawful 
pizza eating if enough pizza is being served at home. It's the best way I can say it with the children in the room right now. So now, now the issue of, of physical intimacy is, of course, more complex than what I've just boiled it down to there. And, and we're going to actually talk about that in one of our later sermons uh, in this series. But for now, the point is this. One reason that God has instituted marriage is to protect you and your spouse from sexual morality and to provide a, a proper context for uh, this intimacy and this desire for it that God has given us. And so that's the third purpose. Qu- quickly, though, before moving on, uh, there's one final application here for, for the single person, the single person that's, that, that is looking to marry. Note that Paul says in verse 8 and 9 that it's better to marry than it is to, to burn with passion. You know, if you're someone who's, who's burning with physical passion, you're just you're, you're rearing to get it going. What you need to do is to, to start preparing yourself to be husband or wife material, to start looking for a good and godly spouse, and you need to get married. And when you do find someone, you don't enter into one of these like five-year dating and engagement arrangements where you just burn with passion even more than you were burning with passion beforehand. Instead, you know, once you find the one uh, that you know is the one that, that, that lives up to God's standards of a spouse, then get married and don't burn with passion and fall into sexual immorality. And so three steps. Become godly, find a godly spouse, and then get married. So that's the third purpose of marriage, to prevent sexual immorality. And this leads into our fourth purpose of marriage. See, once you've married a godly spouse where you can express God's gift of physical intimacy, the next step is to have babies. What's the saying? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage. See, the, fourth pur- the fourth purpose of marriage is to have children and to disciple them. And so you can flip back now again uh, to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Easy passage to find, at least. And here you have uh, the creation of man, and then verse 26 it says, or sorry, in 26 you have the creation of man. And then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I've already alluded to this passage when talking about companionship, but what I want to highlight this time is the clear command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more image bearers of God. And the only way that this can be done lawfully without sin is through intimacy within marriage. But note that it's not simply birthing children 
that is the purpose of marriage. It's having children and discipling them. In other words, the job is not done when the child exits the womb and you've procreated. That's when the job is just getting started. We're, called to, we're not called just to, to make babies, but to make disciples and to fill the earth with worshipers of the true God. When we often hear Psalm 127 quoted uh, when people are having children, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. That's a, a wonderful passage there. But notice that, that it's, the, it's the children that are, are grown up that are a benefit to uh, the people that have them. You know, children, when they're grown, who are, who are able to, to function as mighty warriors defending the cause and the mission of their parents, standing at their side at the gate as the enemy approaches in the fear of the Lord. It's not just simply having children that's the blessing. The blessing is having the children and seeking to raise them as godly offspring. And I think we can all agree that 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 second part is more difficult than than the first part of the two. It doesn't take a whole lot of of love, discipline, sacrifice, and hard work to, to have a lot of children. But it takes a whole lot of it to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It requires a a mature man and a mature woman to dedicate their lives to this rewarding yet difficult task of raising godly offspring. I don't think it's it's a guarantee uh, that if you do everything right that uh, it's always going to turn out perfectly, but I think that is the pattern uh, that we see in Scripture, that if we raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, they will be a blessing as we grow up. And there's a, a few point of, points of application that I want to touch on as it pertains now to this, this fourth purpose of marriage. The idea of, of having children and discipling them. First, I think it is the first, if it is the purpose of marriage to have children and raise godly offspring, then I think that's why we see that this is perhaps something that that is really under attack in our world today, perhaps more than any other purpose of of marriage. Satan hates this. Satan wants to fight against this. And if you just look at the statistics in in the West today, people are are buying into it. They're just deciding not to have children anymore. Someone had mentioned to me, Zach, last week, the term dinks, which stands for people who are married with dual income and no kids. Dinks is, is the name. And so I decided to do some digging into this, and I was, I was astonished at what I found. You know, there's, there's this, this massive and, and growing phenomenon where they have these social media influencers, podcasts, books, financial planners, and conferences all celebrating and promoting this type of lifestyle. And some of the things that they say are, are, are frustrating and honestly a, l- a little bit infuriating. They'll say things like, you know, we can, we can now go on vacation whenever we want, wherever we want. We are doing our part for the climate, 
which is a little ironic considering the first thing that they're celebrating, being able to fly wherever they want. We can go to Costco and we can buy the snacks that we want to buy. And of course, I can go to any football game I want and play 18 holes any times I want. I'm a dink. I don't have any kids. And when I hear those things, I can't help but, but shake my head. It's the opposite of how God sees marriage and children. I mean, this view sees children as a burden, not a blessing. They see them as, as these like leeches and parasites that get in the way of our own personal happiness and freedom. I mean, why would I have children? They're going to disrupt my life and what I want to do. Now, you might recognize the glaring irony in this, that if their very own parents had the same selfish mindset that they are promoting and celebrating, well, they wouldn't even exist. But I doubt that any of them have, have seriously thought of the actual implications of their view. And so this makes me sad, seeing this out in the world. But what makes me even more sad is, is that this view is making its way into the church. I know numerous couples who have no fertility problems, at least that that they're aware of or that, that they've told me about. And they've been married for 10 years or more. And they're not sure if they're ever going to try for kids. Maybe, maybe one day if they, they feel like it. Or you can even get it from, from pastors in premarital counseling. You know, take the first five years to yourselves. Get good jobs. Get a house. Get, get well established. And then maybe start thinking about having kids. But that's not thinking biblically about marriage. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go and, and conceive a child on your honeymoon to have a, a good and godly marriage. But what I am saying is that it's not your prerogative to say, I want marriage, but no to the children. You're removing from marriage one of its core purposes, which isn't your right to do. Now, I'll even go one step further and say, that if you don't want to have children, then I don't think you should get married. Marriage with the, the intention of, of never having children, it's worldly. And it's not a Christian marriage according to God's design. Now I know I'm preaching to the choir here because we have lots of children that, that fill this church. But uh, it's helpful to know these things uh, when talking with people. Say it in a gracious manner, but also encourage them uh, that this is God's design for, for marriage. Now, not only does the world say to us, don't have children, but they also attack the second premise of, of this purpose. If you are going to have kids, then we are going to do everything in our power to make sure that they don't become disciples. That's the direction of the, the public school. I, I don't think that it's, it's, it's quite there yet, uh, but I think it's heading in that direction where they see it as the state's job to undo all of the, the crazy things that your mom and dad tell you, like boys are boys and girls are girls. So they say to us, you go ahead, sure, have the kids, but let us do the discipling for you. Let us be the ones who, who teach them and train them and bring them up in the fear and, and, and the, the nurture and fear of the government. And so I can't tell you how many times I've had you know, negative reactions from from both Christians and non-Christians alike when I, when I tell them that it's, it's our desire to homeschool our children. You know, one of my favorite lines is, aren't you worried that your kids aren't going to be like 
the other kids? And my response is always, yeah, that's the point. I don't want them to turn out like all of the other kids. I'm not trying to create kids that fit in. I'm trying to fill the earth with worshipers of the true and living God. And now your schooling choice is, is not a guarantee of that. Uh, it's not as though you send your kids to public school, they're guaranteed to be heathens. You, send, you homeschool your kids, they're guaranteed to be Christians. It's, it's more than that, but we do need to think about these things. Part of our responsibility is to make disciples. And so that's the first point of application. The world's fighting hard against this purpose of marriage, trying to get you to not have kids, and if you do, uh, to not raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we all need to be aware of that. Second point of application, and this is somewhat controversial, if I haven't already crossed that line already, uh, even within conservative Christian circles, but understanding this purpose of marriage should cause us, at the very least, to think through the practice of birth control. You know, it's, it's surprising how little most Christians have, have thought through this issue from a biblical perspective. And you might say, ah, well, Pastor Lucas, this is where we got you. Because the Bible doesn't talk about birth control. Well, though the Bible doesn't directly talk about birth control, it does give us principles, biblical principles, pertaining to how we should uh, see birth control and what our motivations and attitudes and application of these things pertaining to having children should be. For example, the Bible tells us that murder is wrong. Well, that has implications for birth control. Any birth control that destroys a fertilized embryo or makes the womb uninhabitable for that embryo is murder and sinful. Or another example, the Bible overwhelmingly communicates the value of children and an open womb being a blessing. And so any view of birth control that has an attitude contrary to that would be going against God's word and how God sees children. And so the Bible isn't silent on the issue. However you think of birth control, it ought to be informed by God's teaching on, on these things and a desire on your part to submit to that. I'll give you an example. You have two couples uh, with different motivations for birth control. The first one says, our careers are going well and kids are a hassle and they're going to get in the way of that. The world is overpopulated and we still have lots that we want to accomplish that's going to be difficult to do with children. And besides, we can always, always go off the pill at a later time. Now contrast that with someone who says, now, the Lord has graciously given us six children, and they're all a delight to us. But we are having trouble keeping up. We're having trouble feeding them. We're having trouble keeping up with the costs of a, of a good and biblical education. And our bodies are just at a point where, where they're starting to give out on us. See, both of these couples may decide to, to enter down the path of, of using birth control, but it's for very different motivations attitudes and views of children in the family. And since the Bible doesn't directly talk about birth control, it's more of a gray area, motivations and attitudes are of extreme importance. The first couple sees using birth control as a, as a relief from the challenges and, and the burdens of having children, while the second couple sees using birth control as a sacrifice 
And they recognize that it's, it's a straying away from God's design for marriage because of the brokenness that has entered into our world through sin. And so I don't think uh, that everyone needs to have a full soccer team of children. But we do need to think through the motivations uh, for using birth control. It's, it's interesting. Most Christians didn't really accept birth control until the 1930s. And then it seemed like overwhelmingly uh, everyone just hopped on board with that with, without doing much uh, research for themselves. And so now a third point of application regarding the, this purpose of marriage, uh, and this is a, a bit of a sensitive one, and I understand that, uh, but hopefully uh, it's also one that, that's encouraging. You see, if you're struggling with infertility, you might be thinking to yourself, well, then what? Is, like, if I can't do this, is, is my marriage now all of a sudden not going to live up to its purpose. But remember here that the purpose is to, to have children and to disciple children. See, in this fallen and sinful and broken world that we live in, sometimes having children, it's not possible for married couples. And it's one of the sadder things that we experience in this life. Children are a blessing from God, and when that blessing is, is withheld from us or not given to us, it hurts and it's painful. And we see that in, in the women across Scripture uh, as they, they go and cry out to the Lord to open up their wombs. But if that is you, don't feel like your marriage is now purposeless. Having children is not the absolute goal of marriage. You can still use your marriage to pursue the second half of this purpose, to disciple children. You see, if you're unmarried or if you're, if you're married and the Lord has withheld children from you, don't all of a sudden use that as an excuse to now go and, and live for yourself, but use that as an opportunity to invest more time in the children of others. You know, foster care, adoption, safe families, teaching Sunday school, hosting the youth group, and investing in, in the children of your, your fellow believers, making your, your home a place that is hospitable and welcoming to other families where you can invest in them. Nothing has changed if you can't have children. This, this is still a purpose of your marriage. It's just the objects have become different. And so that is the, the fourth purpose of marriage, uh, to have children and disciple them. Now we've gone to our final purpose of marriage and, and really the most important purpose of marriage and that is to display God's gospel love. You can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 and I'll read this passage for us. The fifth and final purpose of marriage is to display God's gospel love. I'll just read verses 31 to 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, we're going to look at this passage in its fullness next week when we talk about roles within marriage. But the 
essence of this text here is that marriage has a greater meaning than uniting two people together. It's meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church, specifically the love of Christ. We're told in Philippians 2, that wonderful passage, that Jesus did not look to his own interests, but he looked to the interests of others, namely his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. And in humility, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, it is that radical love of Jesus in which he gave up his life for guilty sinners who didn't deserve a lick of it, in which he set aside his own interests, he set aside his own glory that he had with the Father before all of creation, in which he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as they were standing there crucifying him. It's the same love that we are called to show in our marriages. And when we love that way, looking to the needs of our spouse rather than our own needs, when we are willing to humble ourselves and take on the role of a servant within our marriage, when we're extending love when it's not deserved and when they sin against us, we are, we are pointing people to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We are, we are glorifying God by our obedience and our, our mimicking of our Savior. You see, your marriage, it's not about you. Your marriage is not about your spouse. Your marriage is not about your children and how your children turn out, if they turn out as disciples or not disciples. Your marriage is about the glory of God and glorifying God in how you answer his call to love your spouse like Christ loved the church. That's what marriage is really about. Now, the sermon may have hit a few tender spots for you in your marriage. You may be thinking to yourself, well, you know, if these are the purposes of marriage, companionship, sanctification, preventing sexual morality, having kids and then discipling them and modeling God's gospel love, well, if those are the purposes, then, then I failed. And the truth is that, yes, you probably have. You probably have many times. I know that I have failed in these aspects in my marriage. But I do want to encourage you this morning. See, no matter where you are at in your marriage today, what we just talked about, Christ forgives sinners who have failed him. His mighty love and grace covers you and your sins and your failings in your marriage up to this point and, and forever. But now, what you don't do is say, okay, I'm forgiven. I'm just going to remain where I am. No, you don't remain in your sin anymore. You run to Christ in repentance, and Christ will give you forgiveness. You run to him admitting your, your failings and your inadequacies, and he will bind you and lift you up. You run to him saying, God, I just I can't handle it anymore. I can't. I can't deal with this, this woman anymore. I can't deal with this man anymore. This is too much for me. And God is the one who will empower you and give you strength. You set aside your plan. You set aside your desires for your marriage. And you embrace God's. And you'll be amazed 
at his power to build something that is truly beautiful and something that honors him as it is as it has as it is intended to do so let me pray